Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. The sessions that we are on here are teaching, and so I don't apologize because we need this. This is something we so fundamentally need. We need a foundation, and this foundation in the book of Genesis is essential for the strength of our faith And I'm going to even go one step farther. It's essential if you want to be an adamant, all-out, passionate lover of Jesus, you have to know what happened. And you have to believe it because there is a lot of bad teaching out there in the context of the religious institution or churches that have mixed Biblical theology with, uh, with things that just aren't true. And listen, you've heard the expression, not all roads lead to Rome. And not all roads lead to Christ. And there are many roads, narrow is the road, broad are the others, that will take you down multiple paths. Is there a right and wrong? Yes. How can we be so narrow-minded? Well, because it actually makes sense. There can't be multiple truths. There's truth and there's not truth. And so we hold to the context and the literalness of Scripture. This is not Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, which we're focusing, is not uh, allegory teaching. And so I know that we've come from, and I've had that teaching too. I've been a part of that teaching. Uh, It had somewhat framed some of my belief system, and I had purposed not to dig into Genesis in a study Because to be honest, I didn't know what was going to come of it. Until a little while ago, the Holy Spirit really truly arrested me and says, you need to do this. You need to do this. And so I began a personal pursuit uh, regarding Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters. Why the first 11 chapters? Because post-flood, we move into the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 13 of Genesis on. And that's a great teaching all in itself. As a matter of fact, I might even touch on two or three things at the end of the series I wasn't planning on, but I think it might just help tie in what we need to know. But more so than that, we just need to grab hold of how this, the origin, Genesis means the origin of life. How the origin of life, this is not just good Bible stories or good interesting stories you know Adam and Eve and the and the fig leaves and the garden of Eden and and the snake and uh you know and the of course the ark and and the wonderful things about Noah and the ark and it makes for good stories but it's a whole lot more than good stories because it's been it's been diluted with a lot of bad teaching so we have really been working hard to stay true to the texts as we've been going through here and so it's been a bit of a journey so this is a teaching aspect I've actually I, this helps me, but it, I believe, also visually helps you. That's why I pull out the podium, sit on a chair, and don't move. <laughs> and speaking of that, I have to move because I need this, this remote. And it's not for television. It is for the projector. Uh, this morning, because I have some visuals, I have... Uh, I, it's just too hard to keep saying next picture, next picture, next picture, next picture. It's better to just push a button. So uh, we're going to do that for the next few weeks. Again, you're coming in in the middle of this. Uh, go back, go onto our website, Aurora Cornerstone website, and it's all there on the website. Uh, we are coming into, I think, today's seven in a 10-part series. 
You can come in into the middle of it, but I invite you to go back. You need to put the pieces of this puzzle together. I believe it's going to be informative, and it's going to be a blessing to you. So go into the iPod. Uh, it's on iPod as well, and uh, you can get it. You can listen to it. Uh, encourage you to do this. Matter of fact, I encourage you to, even though you've been here, to go back, listen to it, because it's a lot of information. You will get a lot more just as you're not in the context here, but just to listen to it, you'll get a lot more from it. So I can't stress that enough. I'm not going to go back and explain the past uh, because it's there for you to grab yourself. Thank you to those who are in our AV department who make this available like the day of. Uh, we've just really been on it so that that evening you can go into it and you can get it. Uh, so we, they've really worked hard to get it out there because there's editing involved and they do that. They stay for a few minutes at the end of the service to get it edited so it gets out onto the website, onto the iPod. I know a number of people are listening to this because this teaching is not very prevalent. As a matter of fact, here's the thing that really bothered me um, and it's not about them, it's about me, is I, I received a newsletter about uh, three weeks ago from uh, Creation Ministry. We had them in uh, three weeks four weeks ago, and they were here with us. Uh, actually, cause, cosmology, the whole uh, thing, we had it as a session here at the church here at Cornerstone uh, beginning of this month, beginning of February. And they sent out a newsletter, and it was about all their speaking engagements. They have a lot of speaking engagements across this nation. And I looked to see if there's any churches I recognized. And I didn't recognize any of the churches. And what I guess, here's the part that bothered me. Oh, God, how come in the charismatic Pentecostal circles, we aren't grabbing a hold of this stuff? The two primary churches that were used in probably three, two primary churches were the Christian Reformed Church. And secondly, the Baptist Church were the ones over and over bringing them in. And I saw one other, if you would, Pentecostal church, and it was out in B.C., Terrace, B.C., that brought them in. And this is up to about June, July, the ongoing sessions. And so uh, the challenge, I mean, here we have 1,200 churches across the nation in the PAOC, and I saw two bringing them in over a span of six months. And I guess that bothered me to the degree that you now couple that with the most recent statistics of close to 90% I don't know where they get these statistics. I'm not 100% sure. I can't. But it's going, to be, it's going to be relatively close. Close to 90% of our church youth who after college and university do not go back to church. Now, you see a discrepancy. If, if we're not getting into the foundational principles, then when we are challenged by them, and I started with the premise, my very intro was, when it comes to biology, anthropology, and geology, and all that stuff, we leave it to the experts out there. Church, tell Bible stories. And I want to scream, no. Church, teach the Word, because all that comes from the Word. And so, fact. Thank you. So... So that's the encouragement I have, and I really do believe it's foundation. I believe it's so essential, it's so important. Here's the thing that excites me. I really am enjoying having some of our youth with us uh, I, because I find being taught this. They're not being taught this. They're being taught the alternative in their schools. And so they're listening to this maybe with ears for the first time in many ways and grabbing a hold of it. And so I rejoice in that because... Um, that's a part of what this is about. I'm not going to give you heavenly humor to start today. What I'm going to do today is, first of all, i got to make sure this works. And Pastor Isaac said, turn it on. 
Number one. Thank you. Number two, push button. Oh, okay. Quiz. Who said yay? Quiz. Don't you love those pop quizzes and those of you who go to school? Here's quiz. We have seven questions. I want to see how you're going to do. Question number one. On day one, what did God do? A, made dry land appear. B, divided the water under the firmament. C, divided the light from the darkness. Or D, gathered together the waters into the seas. A, B, C, or D. Tell me what you believe it is. Okay, that is correct. C, divided the light from the darkness found in Genesis 1, 1 to 5. We go to the next one. On what day of creation did God create man? First, fourth, fifth, or sixth? C, well, or sixth. You can just go ahead and say the answers now. Sixth, Genesis 1, 24 to 31, sixth. Question number three. What did God use to create Adam? Clay, dust, ashes, mire. It is dust. Genesis 2, 7. Next, who named the animals? God, Adam, Eve, or Noah? Adam. It's the correct answer. Genesis 2, 20. Next, what animal was more subtle than any beasts of the field which the Lord God had made? The pygog, the behemoth, serpent, or coney? Which animal? It is the serpent. Genesis 3, 1. Where in Eden did the Lord God plant a garden? Eastward, southward, northward, westward. Eastward. Correct answer is eastward. Genesis 2, verse 8. And last... What was placed at the east of the Garden of Eden to keep the way of the tree of life? Angels and a flaming lamp, cherubim and a flaming sword, seraphim and a flaming torch, or raphim and a flaming wall. The correct answer is cherubim and a flaming sword. Genesis 3, 24. Did anybody get all seven? Okay, okay. Thank you. The resources are, I put up in front of you, these are the resources I've been going through, and uh, a lot of this has come through these. There are study notes, you can pick the study notes, all the stuff that we talk, all the outlines are on the study notes. If you haven't picked them up, there may be some left on the way out to grab, or if you so desire, you can run out, but not run, walk out and pick them up at the info center if there's any left, you can do that and kind of fill in the blanks as we talk. I invite you to do that, I really want engagement that way. Okay, so feel free to do that. Uh, Genesis. Uh, Today, really our topic, the sons of God, the daughters of man, leading up to the flood. That's our topic today. Two main things we want to talk about uh, in this text. The two main things, we're still coming off of the fall, the pain of the fall, Genesis 3. Then the repercussions of the fall in the generations that follow, and there are multiple generations We put a chart together to show you that in Genesis chapter 5, there are 1,500 years worth taking place in one chapter of the Bible alone. Genesis 5 is actually 1,500 years worth. And it follows for period, it follows the line of Cain, which is the line of those who utterly did evil and totally turned their back on God. 
God would raise up another line. Cain had killed his brother Abel. And from Adam and Eve, they would have many children, but particularly of the line of Seth. You begin to then flow because God had spoken to Eve before she gave birth to Cain, her first child. And the fall had already happened. Adam and Eve had already had committed sin. They were already covered in clothes, in skins of animals, animal skins. And the fellowship with God was increasingly becoming broken by the nature of sin called original sin. However, they had been perfect. And so the consequences of that sin lives itself over years of sin upon sin upon sin. Where creation groans, where animals, the animal kingdom, all these things and, and, and life and humanity groans under the weight and increasing weight of sin. You see it increase, the depth, the depravity of sin as it increases. And out of that, Eve names Cain because God had said, you will have one who will come through you, Adam and Eve, who will redeem what's been taken away, who will set right again, who will be made perfect. And, and not be made perfect, but out of their perfection, will grant us back into right fellowship with God. And Eve named her son Cain based on that, based on seed man. It actually makes reference to Messiah man. Eve believed that this firstborn of hers would have righted the whole situation. What she did not know was it was going to be 4,000 more years before the situation would be righted. 4,000 more years. She could not have known that. So she called him Cain, called him seed man. From his seed, which is true, from his seed would come the Messiah. But not for a very, very long time. We come into the text that we have here today. Let's pick it up. Genesis chapter 6. Follow with me. If you have it in your Bibles. Verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they choose. Or they chose. Verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days also afterward, and when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Father, we ask, help us to understand your word. Help us to understand it both historically. Help us to understand and see you in your word. I pray that you will help us to be able to not only uh, allow this to become us, but help us to be able to accurately speak your word to others, our children, our loved ones, and those that you cross-sector our paths with. Help us, God, to be faithful to this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is probably one of the most perplexing texts in all of the Old Testament, in these verses. They're one of the hardest to interpret. Now remember, we have no scientific evidence. The scientific method is thrown out. Scientific method requires that you are there, it's repeatable, it's recordable, and you are there in person. And of course, none of us have been. 
So what you have to do with this text is you have to put it up against every other text and reference that uses these words based on times, situation, people involved, and what did they talk about it later? So what was passed down by word of mouth that they began to bring greater revelation later, but at that time it wasn't, it wasn't clear in Scripture because this is really unclear. All kinds of things have come out of this, and I had somebody come to me a few weeks ago. I says, I hope you talk about the Nephilims. And so we are for a few minutes because this, there's a lot of stuff going on around this text. I'm going to try to do it in a very concise way, and I'm not going to get deep into it because my own opinions have been, have been adjusted in this, in the study of this. There are four essential views held within the Christendom. Four essential views. Four different interpretations of this. And we can't be emphatic about any one of them. Let's be honest. They are interpretations based on what I just explained. There's four basic ones. First of all, we have that... The first one is... Okay, what we're trying to interpret. Here's what we're trying to interpret. We're trying to interpret who are these daughters born to them. The son, who are these sons of God? Who took the daughters of men and had sex. Who are these sons of God who had sex with the daughters of men? Because it didn't go well. <laughs> In verse 3, God has said, my spirit will not contend with them. This brought about the onslaught of the numbering of the days of the flood was going to take place where all mankind was wiped out except for Noah and his family. And then you have the Nephilims. And the Nephilims were like the byproduct of this. Who are the Nephilims? Talk a little, because this is the, this is the, so in that the Nephilims giants, were they giants? Were they giants? The Anak group of people, giants that walked this earth. Now out of this they've tried to Bring all Greek mythology and Babylonian mythology and all kinds of uh, mythology that has been thrown into the mix of this. And there's a very convoluted section right here in trying to understand this. So in the church, again, trying to be faithful to the text, four things. Number one, here's the first interpretation that members of the royal family, which is the line of Seth, called the sons of God by adoption. In other words, Seth was adopted into it should have been Cain. Cain abdicated his place. Abel was killed. So Seth was grafted in. And so you see in chapter 5, we looked at it, the whole lineage of Seth. So this Seth, the line of Seth adopted in under the covenant, who then married wives from the pagan line of Cain, his brother and their descendants, married multiple wives and womankind generally. And that's the story of the sons of God, sons of God from the line of Seth. The second interpretation out of this has been members of the tyrannical royal family, a royal family, and they were called, it's from the line of Lamech, from the line of Cain. Now, can I just pause here for a second? If you actually go into our chart that we had, I think, last week, you will see names duplicated. Lamech is in both lines. You will see Enoch in both lines. And it's easy to think they're the same people, but they're not. If you do the timelines, they're just the same names, but two totally different people. And that has been a source sometimes of confusion because the name is the same. You think it's, well, they were in Cain's group and they were in Seth's group, but they weren't. 
The timelines don't add up. So they are not the same. They cannot be the same names. They are named, but they're not the same people. So in this, you have from the line of Lamech out of Cain's group. They were kings. Marrying commoners, the sons of God, interpreted. So, go to the next one. We have angelic beings. They can be angels, good angels, or bad angels. Demonic. And in chapter 6, verse 4, made reference as they are the Nephilims. Uh, giants came as a result. And these had these demons had sexual intercourse with human women. And the next interpretation was angelic beings, demons, who possessed selected men to spawn a line of tyrants. The purpose was to spawn a Nephilim generation. Now, in addition, of course, unbelieving interpretations have been found through the Sumerans, the Babylonians, the Greek mythologies called the demigods. Lori and I, a few years ago, were in Greece. We had a tour, and they took us to the era, the mythology of demigods. You actually walked down a colonnade of where these gods were still on pillars. And it, you have the whole Olympian era of these gods, and uh, a lot of that stuff you see in some of our movies we have today, uh, Thor, and the different ones, are created of the mythology, of Greek mythology. And so they've tried to mix that with biblical theology, and these gods interacted, intermarried, and you have these beings, the Nephilims, these giants of the land, not fully human, not fully God. They married with each other. You can see where this gets really out there. I want to take two that are probably the two most common of these interpretations. And that is, first one I got to talk about angels and man. Uh, referred to as uh, the first one that we talked about, members of Seth's line who are adopted in marrying into Cain's line. Uh, or, or sorry, the first one I'm actually going to talk about. No, I'm going to get back to that. First one I'm going to talk about the angelic beings. The Genesis account, the book I most used, he tends to lean towards this particular interpretation of sons of God uh, regarding, let me see if the next one is, the next one in regard to, so you have these demons marrying humans. And he tends to lean towards that. I want to share why this interpretation gains a bit of ground. First of all, here we're going to go through it very quickly. First of all, the Hebrew word, Sons of God. Sons of God does not simply mean God, but they also are made reference to, it's, it's an, an expression for angels, and it can be good angels and bad angels. So sons of God in Scripture can be translated good angels or bad angels. It can be either. Next, we see that evidenced in Job 1 and 2. It says the sons of God are those who came before God. Satan was among them. They were referred to in Job as sons of God. We see also in Psalms 29, 89, that sons of God meant sons of the Almighty. We cross-reference Scripture. We go into Daniel. In Jan Daniel 3, 25, sons of God is used here of angels, like the fourth in the furnace, 
was referenced as a son of the gods. So the Old Testament use of sons of God was used for angels. Next we see that Okay, I went too far. Let me back it up again. Okay. Secondly, in the Bible, angels were always referred to in the masculine sense. So that people have argued saying, well, what about the daughter of female angels? We don't actually read that anywhere. Uh, they were always used. Three particular illustrations. Daniel, when he talked to a leading angel, he referred man, Gabriel. The two angels who talked to Abraham and at the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were mistaken to be two men, therefore they were male. And we saw that after the resurrection of Christ in the Gospels, the angels at the tomb were male, they were masculine. Thirdly, we have that Jewish tradition often refers to sons of God as angels. And last, New Testament supports, and here's the interesting part, and I invite you, I haven't put them down before you, Second Peter 2, 4, if you want to grab your Bibles or devices, 2 Peter 2, 4, and we're going to go to Jude 6. You might want to mark this down because you can come back to this. This is one of the strong arguments for and it's also a strong argument against. I'm putting it out there because as we navigate through this, what about these children of this? Does it matter? It actually does matter. It does matter what Scripture says. It is mentioned, but not a lot more said about it. So, in 2 Peter chapter 2, two New Testament references. 2 Peter 2, 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, then he goes and talks about the story of Noah. Note that part. He didn't spare the angels when they sinned, obviously fallen angels, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloom and gloomy dungeon to be held for judgment. Then Peter picks up on this in 2 Peter, or sorry, Jude picks up on this in Jude 6 and 7. Here it says in Jude 6 and 7. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Now, I want to draw attention to here. Here it talks about angels that were sent to hell in gloomy, judge, in gloomy dungeons, held for judgment. Jude talks about angels didn't keep their position. They had a position of it. They abandoned their authority. Did the angels abandon authority in the cosmos and step into that human realm and engage in activity with the women of men? That's the question around this. Go back to that. They did not keep their positions of authority. They abandoned their home. These he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment. In other words, so bad, so heinous was this, the angels and men, that they were subjected to immediate judgment and then he goes right into verse 7 he compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns who gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion these serve as examples of those who suffer punishment of eternal fire now I just want to say this that as we begin to try to understand there's some major objections here they are 
It's the expression sons of God for believers. It's used for believers too. It's not just angels. Also, Jesus said, angels can't marry. And he talked about that particularly regarding heaven and heaven. Angels will not marry. Neither will humans. Then he goes on. In Peter and Jude, the reference to angels were meant to signify the fall of the angelic beings where God cast them out of heaven to roam the cosmos. And therefore, it just wasn't angels cast into a place of judgment. We know that in the cosmos, one-third fell. One-third are active. Here's the point behind it. That we see whatever happened. Satan was very active to stop the seed from getting to Jesus. That's the point. He was very active to somehow dilute the seed, to pervert the seed of generations that was promised by the Father so that it wouldn't happen. Uh, Way back then, the attempt to stop a coming Messiah. Remember, Satan did not know when the Messiah would come either. That was a mystery to everyone. That's why in Luke it says, in due time. In God's mind, he knew exactly when it was happening. No one else did, including fallen angels. Did not know when this was going to happen. But if they, could convert the, if they could pervert the entire line, then it could not happen. And that was the attempt. If we go to that, and, and talking about this, uh, if it were angels, uh, we mentioned that, okay, uh, giants. Now, just going to not spend a lot of time on this one. We often have used that giants came out of this. The Nephilims were giants. And that has made reference back into numbers where, if you remember the story of uh, Moses and they sent spies into the promised land, 12 spies, 10 came back and they talked about the giants of Anak. And these giants of Anak, these huge people, and, and the reference, the Nephilims, they, they referenced them also to this must be the Nephilim line that came from whatever happened back in Genesis chapter 6. These are the giants of the land, an evil people. Uh, and so it's made reference here. Now here's the problem. Here's where it breaks down. It's not that simple. Because the Nephilims are also referred to, the word is also used in some of the translations in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4, or sorry, Genesis chapter 10 verse 8, making reference to Nimrod. This is a post-flood person. And they made reference to the Nephilims as heroes of old, men of renown. Now that was taken from Greek mythology. They would use the Nephilims and they they grabbed a hold of this expression and began to call any heroes of old or men of renown Nephilims. So they weren't necessarily giants because Nimrod was called that. He was a hero of old, a man of renown in Genesis 10.8. So it's not clear. Here's the problem with giants physiologically. It's one thing to have somebody the size of LeBron James. To me, he's a giant, okay? Almost seven foot tall. He's huge. Why does Kyle Lowry ever stand in front of him? I don't know. (laughs) But we know there's eight foot people, nine foot people, ten foot people. That has happened. It's been recorded. That's one thing, to have a larger body. But the reference here are people who are double the size, triple the size, and quadruple the size. Physiologically, we actually could not be double our size. Physiologically, just looking at the body. They've actually challenged this. The mass of our upper body, our legs were never made to be twice or three times as big. 
It cannot handle it. Now, you take big animals like elephants and rhinoceroses. They have a huge bottom part to hold the mass of the upper. Us humans don't. If everything increased double to triple, we could not stand because we're not structured to stand. So physiologically, it breaks down when you begin to put that size in place. So the other idea was we come to the members of the royal, the family of Seth. In other words, from Seth, the godly line, they intermarried with the ungodly. And I was talking with, if you were here a few weeks ago when we had uh, our speaker with us, um, Jim Hugh, and I was talking with Jim afterward, and I was talking about, because I was studying this right at that point in time, and I was saying, I was just, my head was swimming with this, and he said, you know what, I've actually written an article on this, and so he went home on the Sunday afternoon, he threw me the article, and this really helped to be able to define some of the things I'm sharing right here. That is this. Normally, God does not destroy an entire population due only to sexual sins unless the sins are tied directly to the individual spirits. Where sexual perversion rises to the magnitude of occultic practices. You follow it with that. That's very important. It's not just about sexual sins. It's about the sexual sins inhabit the person in an occultic spirit. These pre-flood Nephilims acted in ways similar to marauding Vikings. They were fierce. They were fearless. They burned crops and villages. They took hostages. They were ruthless and mean to the core. They did far worse evil because they consolidated the power of the line of Seth to the line of Cain. And evil in that consolidated power was utterly evil. They were proud and they built empires and displayed zero fear of God and zero fear of man and filled the earth with their violence. We do know that is what took place. That in such a place there was such wickedness, such generation upon generation, there was no good found in them. No good found. And so out of that, there was nothing to redeem. There was not any more light. It's like a field that had been so left and so overridden with weeds. Nothing good could grow in the crop. You light the field on fire, burn it down so you could plant again something good. And it was mankind at the time of Genesis chapter 6. We know that. So corrupt that when we come to this next passage of Scripture, that when we get to it, we read... That this was, God could not tolerate it anymore. So many opportunities of repentance was there. But there was nothing there to grab hold. There was no light to bring up. There was no flame to fan. There was nothing. It had gone so deep into their sin. We pick that up when we read the text. In verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. That 120 years actually from the point of the beginning of this corruption to the point of the beginning of the flood. 
Verse 4, the Nephilims were on the earth in those days also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great men's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. His heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created. From the face of the earth, men, animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air. For I am grieved that I have made them. And in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Note this part. God pronounces judgment. 120 years. Remember, God's always a God of grace and mercy. 120 years of grace. It wasn't going to happen today, but it will happen. Church, can I just pause there? We are still living under a prophetic judgment. You know that, don't you? That one day we will all stand before the Father and give account of our lives. Every man, every woman, here and out there, will stand before God. And did you come by the way of Christ Jesus? Did you repent of the sin and fallen nature? Every person. We still will come, but we are living in another grace period. It's another grace period. He pronounced judgment 120 years grace period. And note the time of the 120 years was from the time of the intermarriage, the beginning of the intermarriage, to the time of the flood. Because people did live beyond 120 years. That's not what he was saying. It was the point of his judgment. And then the, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, verse 6, the Lord regretted he had made man. Here you have a picture of a wounded father. I want to now just take something and lead up, and I want to just close with this here point. It's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. So the Lord said, this is the pre-flood. I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, the animals, birds, creatures. I regret I've made them. Noah found favor. Verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Now we're transitioning. We're taking a look at Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. We just finished talking how evil it was. Now we have this one man. There's a number of things that come out of that particular text. Here it is. We see God declared a worldwide catastrophic event that would wipe all people and animals off the face of the earth, minus those who would enter the ark. We see next where it says, but Noah. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he was righteous, blameless, and walked with God. That's a three-point sermon. Maybe another day. Can't do that today. And so Noah would enter into a 70-year period of building. 70-year period of building the ark where his sons and their wives and he and his wife would board the ark. The ark is a picture of salvation. The ark is a picture. The song we sang, Take Me to the Cross. The ark is a picture of the cross. It's a four, they call it a type, a picture of something to come. That if you get on the ark, you will be saved. If you fall on the cross of Christ Jesus today, we will be saved. Praise God. It's a place, but it's the only way. There's not multiple boats out there. There's not another part of the world you can escape to. There is one way of escape. And that has been made readily available for every man, woman, and child on this planet. Verse 13, we begin to talk about the size of the ark, and I'm going to stop here. 
The Genesis account of the ark construction is quite brief, but we know this much. The ark, the size is 450,000 cubits. How big is a cubit, you ask? A cubit is the distance between the tip of your finger to your elbow, square. So 450,000 cubits. This means the ark had the equivalent volume of over 340 semi-trailers for this ark. It's a big boat. You want to know how, much can, how many animals can get onto that boat? You can't get all the animals onto that boat. It's not big enough. Well, if they were all the size of sheep, which they weren't. You had smaller than sheep and you had bigger than sheep. If they were all the size of sheep, an ark that size would contain, you could put 102,000 sheep on it. Over 100,000 sheep because it has three decks. Okay. Each deck could fit 22 basketball courts. I'm trying to give you pictures. There's plenty of room here for animals, man, food, and water, and everything else. Rooms for housing the animals. God told Noah to make rooms. The word rooms is interesting. The translation means nests. Nests. Make nests. Now that's different than just like going into your bedroom. A nest is like your entire home. Make nests. The idea of nests literally means make compartment for animals. Therefore, animal clusters would be in clusters. They were nests on the ark. It's quite interesting. So, you have the picture of these nests. They would be upon one another. They would be above, three decks high. They would be in clusters, these nests, throughout the ark. You see a number of clusters. Somebody asked, why would you put that one in there? But these pictures of these, these nests were throughout the ark. It's interesting that the ark, in its composition and its dimensions, it, would be, it was actually wider than it was higher. So, listen, I want you to get out of your mind that old movie, Evan. Um, what's that movie? Yeah, that one. Okay. Um, and particularly get out of your mind the latest movie that was out just a few years ago called Noah. It's estimated from those who actually study the text that probably 70 to 80% of it's inaccurate. I watched it once. I was on a plane. I watched it on the plane. I was so disgusted I won't watch it again. Okay. It's Hollywood. It's not true to the biblical text. Actually, there is a movie coming out, and I think if you go on creation.com, there is a movie. Um, I'm not quite sure how to find it. Uh, I saw pictures of it when we, when we were down there, and uh, there is a movie that really has tried to work with the text here, much closer to the text. Here's the thing. The ark is actually wider than it is high. In other words, it's almost impossible to tip it. Almost impossible. They say that the ark, and they've, they've made scales of this now to, to see if it can work. They've made scales of it. It would... If you even tipped it 60%, it would write itself. It was an amazing piece of construction. And God told Noah to build a roof. Better translate it, hole to let the light in. It was build a skylight, Noah. How many animals went on the ark? Less than 16,000. Because they went in according to their kinds, not according to their species. That's what the Bible says. We tried to say, how could you get all the animals in? Well, you don't have to have 50 versions of wolf-like, dog-like animals on the ark. You don't have to have 20 versions of the different cats. 
You only have to have one. Because within their species, they recreate their species. You need kinds. And so out of the kinds, less than 16,000 animals boarded the ark. That's those who went in pairs and those who went in seven because some would be sacrificed. We'll talk more about that next week. Less than 16,000. How long would it take? Some have said, you could never get them all on the ark in the amount of time it said. Actually, they've tested this theory. It would take about five hours to board the 16,000 and stack them in their cages. Now, stacked cages with food on top or nearly or nearby allowed plenty of room for air circulation. And this is really, so what they did down in Kentucky, they built this ark identical to the dimensions there. Lori and I went there last summer. I invite you, it's a great family trip. So as a family, it's great for kids, go down. We went last summer because I was in the middle of the study of this. Went last summer, we took a long weekend. You can do it in a long weekend. We took a long weekend, we did the civic weekend, we went down and we went to the Ark Encounter. They have a replica of the Ark, they built it. And you go inside and you will see the decks and you will see how they laid it out. And they have laid it out to see, is this possible? Because there's been a lot of people who said it's impossible. And it is more than possible. There's more than gaps in space for air to flow, stacked cages, and room for circulation. We have, regarding some passengers, it's the first time the word covenant is mentioned in Scripture in chapter 6, verse 18. God says, I will build and establish my covenant. I will establish my covenant with you. You Noah will come on the ark. First time the word covenant is mentioned. That's very key. First time covenant is mentioned. Let's talk about sea creatures. Many sea creatures would not be included in the boarding. And here's again, they've been researching this. Many of our sea creatures can adopt to both fresh and salt water. Remember, fresh water is less dense than salt water. Many sea creatures, salt, fresh water will float at the top of salt water. They could actually stay in the ocean for beyond that period of when the ark was floating and they went back into their own areas. So, another interesting thing. What about the food? What about the food? Well, regarding food for animals, how can you store a year-long supply of food for how these many 16,000 animals? And it's called compressed and dried food. We have really learned how to do that in our 21st century. Compressed and dried food which is easily reconstituted with rainwater. Uh, for carnivorous animals, dried and salted meat stores a long time. It has been estimated that the total volume required for food, and I've heard stories about this that you couldn't get all that food on. Actually, they've done this on the mock. How much food would it take of compressed and dried food? Only 15% of the ark's entire volume would have needed to be there for food. Food is only required 15% of the entire volume and an additional 9% for water. People said, yeah, the amount of water that 16,000 animals would take? But remember, once it started raining, you know where I'm going with that, you trough it in. You trough it in. Okay. Uh, I'm, okay, I'm going to stop there. Genesis chapter 7, verse 5. I want to close. And the Bible says, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. I want you to note the expression, all. He did all. When Jesus was asked in the New Testament, what's the greatest command? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with 
all your heart, soul, strength. Not some of you. The problem of the fall of Genesis in 3 and on is when Cain offered a sacrifice, he didn't obey God in all things. And then God came and said, Cain, we can turn this around. You don't have to go the way you're going. And Cain refused to embrace God. And you have the lines and the degeneration of sin. And over and over and over it comes to, will I give God all my heart, all my soul, all my strength? Or some of it. Some's not good enough. It really does require all. It says, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Everything. Everything. Next week, we're going to talk about the flood. A lot of stuff has come out. Our continents can be explained from post-flood. Ice Age. How many just love that cartoon, that animated thing of the Ice Age? I, those are one of my favorite. Okay, They're not biblical, but they are so cute. But the Ice Age, there was an Ice Age. Not multiple Ice Ages. There was an Ice Age. It came out of what happened here. Uh, how could an entire planet be flooded? We can talk about that. How can you flood the entire planet in that amount of time? Yep, you can. And conversely, how can you get rid of all the water after the flood in that amount of time? Yep, we're talking about that. And how do you get all the animals into the ark? We'll go there too. And how do you explain all these fossils that we say are millions of years old? We'll talk about that too. Father in heaven, we come back to this place. Salvation, there is only one way. And that's through Christ Jesus. As there was one ark, there was one boat, there is one way to you. One way back to our Father. Lord, I pray that every man and woman here in the sound of my voice will come to that decision-making process of recognizing God without you. I too will face your judgment. But Lord, your mercy, your grace is now extended this day. This day, March 1, 2020. Your mercy is extended again one more day that I might embrace Christ as Lord. And so, Lord, I pray for every man and woman here this morning, Lord, that we would invite you to be Lord and Savior. God, open our hearts that we would have the courage to say yes to you. And that, God, we would have the courage then to follow through with water baptism and, and to tell others that Jesus is Lord. He has washed my sins away. Thank you, God, for so great a gift of salvation. Thank you, God, that the plan, we look back to Jesus Christ. We look back and see such a great plan. And Lord, we rejoice in the day of our Savior. And so, Lord, I pray blessings upon us as we live that out. And that, God, our hearts would be enraptured with joy and thanksgiving. How blessed it is for us to be called children of God. Thank you, Lord, for this. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, the Lord bless you. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.